Today's scripture reading is Isaiah 61 and 62, found on page 607 of the Provided Bibles. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain quiet, till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication, and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. Never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies and never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your savior comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. This is the word of God. Well, I always hope that you're all paying attention to the scripture readings uh, each Sunday, but I particularly hope that today there's many uh, 
deep and rich and beautiful and glorious truths in all of scripture, but in the book of Isaiah. And these chapters, I think, bring us to some of the, some of the um, greatest of those. Um, so I hope that you'll agree with me as we go along and look at that. <clears throat> if, you're one of the, if you're a parent, in my opinion, one of the hardest things in all of parenting comes right at the beginning. Picking a name for your child. <laughs> one, no, some of the women are shaking their head. <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe not the hardest thing, but one of the very hard things <laughs> about uh, having a child is choosing the name for that child. Our first child, we finally settled on a name after much debating and uh, uncertainty two hours before we left the hospital. Our third, our fourth child, uh, most recent child, we picked his name 20 minutes before leaving the hospital. Our second child, we picked it because it was the only name we could agree on on our lists. There was one in common and only one, so that sort of made the choice for us. And our third child, we basically gave up and let our first child pick the name of our third child. She, she did a good job. It's hard to do. I, I, I always thought it was a very hard thing to do. I thought it was hard because it's so permanent, right? It's hard because you want to pick a name that fits the personality of the child, which you don't know yet. It's hard because you want to avoid um, bad rhyming word nickname potential, and you want to uh, avoid bad famous person association potential. It's hard because you want to pick a name that has a long shelf life and that is a fitting name through all the stages of a person's life, not just when they're very young or not just when they're very old, you know what I mean? It's hard. But most of all, we want to choose a good name because I think we tend to live up or down to our name. We tend to live up or down to our name. And I think that's why uh, I really believe that affirmation of someone is such a powerful thing to build up and strengthen that person. And that's why condemnation of someone is such a devastating thing because the words we speak to someone and the words we hear about ourselves from others matter because those words assign identities to us. They tell us who we are and we tend to live up or down to our names. And in our culture, we often are more inclined, generally speaking, I think, to pick names for aesthetic reasons, and there's nothing wrong with that. We picked all of the names that we, we picked for uh, how they sound. But in Israelite culture and in the ancient uh, Near East, uh, um, the meaning of a name was often more important to its being chosen than the sound of the name. Names were often chosen for their meaning because name and character were closely connected. And in the Old Testament, that's why naming of children was so important. And that's why the name changes of people in the Old Testament came at significant turning points in their lives. Because name and character were so closely connected such that a name and its meaning were seen as assigning and reflecting that person's identity and character. And the reason I'm talking about this is because here in Isaiah chapter 62, God's people are given a new name. 
And the reason God's people are given a new name is because of what's happened in six, chapter 61. They've experienced God's salvation and redemption, which has given them a new identity and a new character and a new status and standing before God. All that results from their salvation. They've been given a new identity, and that identity is determined by God himself, and so it's eternal and unchanging, and it can't be erased or diminished by any other identity we might assign to ourselves in our experience or any other identity someone else might try to assign to us. And that's, that's why then they're given a new name in chapter 62 to reflect that new identity that results from their salvation. That's the main point, I think, of these chapters. The main point is the new identity of those who experience God's salvation. That when God's salvation comes into our lives, we get a new identity symbolized by this new name that God gives his people. So that's the two things we're gonna look at when God's salvation comes into our lives, first. Second, then we get a new identity. Isaiah chapter 61, verse one and two, tells us about God's salvation that comes into our lives. But in order to do that first, it needs to tell us about our lives before God's salvation comes. And we're familiar with these verses perhaps because Jesus quoted them in Luke chapter four to describe the nature of his own ministry and mission on earth, that he is the one of Isaiah chapter 61 verse one that is anointed by God and filled with God's spirit to proclaim the good news, but not just to proclaim the good news, not just to tell about this good news from God, but actually coming to do it, to get it done, to accomplish it for us. To do for God's people what this good news promises God will do for them. And in Jesus, then, all these promises of what God's salvation is all about is made real and made available and accessible to us. And when we're in him by faith, it's ours. But if we're gonna come to him in faith, we have to realize our need to do so. We have to realize who we are before God's salvation comes into our lives, before we're ready. Uh, and, and until we do that, we won't be ready to come to God to receive that salvation. Because we have to realize that we were what this passage is describing. We were the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, the prisoners, the mourners, for whom Jesus came and for whom this salvation is for. And when we do that, then the good news becomes good news to our ears and our hearts. In order for that good news to become good news, we have to embrace and own this bad news and when we do that, the way is opened up for good news to become good news. The gospel is good news. It's news. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's not good advice. It's not advice that tells you how to save yourself or how to get yourself to be the kind of person that God loves and accepts. Because that's not good news to those who can't save themselves or who can't make them into that kind of person that, that God loves and accepts. It's good news. It announces what's been done for us that we couldn't ever do for ourselves. 
It's the realization that if salvation is going to come, it doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us. And so it's announced to us as a gift. People who are, as this passage describes, bound in chains, captive, prisoner, people in that situation, it's cruel and useless to tell them to just free yourself. They would have done that already. They didn't need you to give them that idea. The reason they haven't done that isn't because you didn't come along and give them that good idea. It's because they are bound in chains as prisoners and they can't. That's the difference between good advice and good news. The gospel is the good news that breaks our chains, does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Jesus, by what he does, actually frees us, actually redeems us, actually saves us. And the gospel, so the gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. It's good. It's not more oppression or more enslavement or more captivity. It's not more burden. It's not more despair. It's not more shame. It's not more deception and it's not more empty promises. It's not any of those things that are all too common in what the world offers. It's good news because it's what the God of grace offers. It's good news because those who receive it do so because they realize that they have nothing apart from it and they find everything in it. It's good news. Just look, let's look at what this passage tells us about who the good news is for and who this good news is really good news to. Verse one, it's good news to the brokenhearted, the captives, and the prisoners. Verse two, it's good news to all who mourn. Verse three, it's good news to those who grieve, those who wear ashes, those who have a spirit of despair. Verse four, it's good news for the ruined and devastated. Verse seven, it's good news for the shame and disgraced. And as all, all those things are summarized by the one uh, phrase that comes at the beginning of verse one, it's good news to the poor. And this word poor uh, is not only or even primarily the economically poor, the way we would tend to associate, what we would tend to associate with that word. Because when the Bible and the Old Testament talks about God extending his grace and mercy to the poor, what it's primarily talking about is the humble poor. Those who are lowly because of sin and suffering in this fallen and broken world. It's talking about the spiritual poor, to the, those who, whether their circumstances of life are poverty or plenty, and, um, <clears throat> and either way, they have recognized their spiritual poverty before God. They haven't let their plenty in life blind themselves to their true spiritual condition of being impoverished before God. And they haven't let their uh, circumstances of poverty and whatever form that might take in life, they haven't let that harden themselves so that they can't see the goodness and grace of God, the one who can help them. The spiritual poor, those who weather their circumstances in life are characterized by poverty or plenty. They recognize their spiritual poverty before God. And when God then comes to them and says, hey, I have victory for you. I have blessing for you. I have freedom for you. 
they hear good news in that because they know they are in the deepest of spiritual bondage. They know they are the deepest in spiritual poverty and need. Who are the poor? I I just couldn't resist reading this quote I read this week. Who are the poor? It's those who are so broken by life that they have no more heart to try. It's those who are so bound up in their various addictions that liberty and release are a cruel mirage. It's those who think that they will never again experience the favor of the Lord or see his deliverance from those who oppress them. It's those who think that their lives hold nothing more than ashes, sackcloth, and the fainting heaviness of despair. These are the ones to whom Jesus shouts good news. And those are the ones who hear good news in what the gospel offers. It's good news who, for those who are in the spiritual position of readiness, of longing, of desperation to receive what Jesus has done for them. And so I want to go through all those characteristics I listed before. So if you're brokenhearted, as verse 1 talks about, broken and beaten down by the cruel world of sin that we live in, the good news promises to bind your wounds. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And this binding of the brokenhearted is the exact opposite of where sin leaves us. All the way back in the beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, Isaiah described God's people with unbound wounds. He said, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. And in that context, these aren't surface wounds on our skin, but they're wounds in our heart and soul that are unbound because sin leaves us broken and unhealed. And we might think that in turning to sin we find healing, but we only find more wounds. But Jesus, in him, we find healing because God promises to bind up the brokenhearted. He brings healing. If you're held captive, imprisoned, oppressed by sin, as you see in verse 1, the good news promises deliverance and freedom from that. Maybe your captivity is addiction. God wants to give you freedom. Maybe your captivity is being oppressed in some way in this life. God wants to give freedom. And in the Bible, God is always on the side of the oppressed as opposed to the oppressor. He's never on the side of the oppressor. And the, re, the, the church too often hasn't gotten this right because the church too often in its history has become oppressor or who has been on the side of, or taken up the cause of oppressor. And I don't want our church to be that kind of church, because nothing is more inappropriate and inconsistent to someone who has received the deliverance that God's salvation brings from oppression and captivity and enslavement, because that person ought to know what it means to be oppressed by Satan and enslaved to sin. And that person ought to know the joy and freedom that results from the deliverance that God brings into our lives. And so that person, like God, ought to have compassion on those who are oppressed in this life in whatever form that might take. And in compassion, we ought to want to see them delivered out of that earthly oppression into freedom. 
and in compassion, we ought to want to see them delivered from spiritual oppression into eternal freedom, which is the ultimate aim and accomplishment of what Jesus comes to do. And that's why verse 3 mentions in the, the, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Because those who seek refuge in God find his favor. And they find the assurance to know what their, whatever their source of captivity in this life, that God takes vengeance upon that. That it will come to an end, that his power will be broken. It will get what it deserves. And that is a great source of comfort to the people of God when these promises that we're given haven't yet in our lives come to fruition in every way. And that's why he mentions comfort right after mentioning vengeance. That's the next thing we see. If you mourn, verse two and three. If you, it says in verse three, if you wear ashes, those are, that's a sign of mourning. If you put on the funeral suit or funeral dress one too many times to bear, he goes on to say, if you have a spirit of despair and feel like your soul will break if you cry one more bitter tear, Jesus comes to you and says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning feels like it disqualifies us from any blessing or any comfort. And this world holds its blessing from those who are downtrodden and sin kicks those who are down, but Jesus comes to lift up those who are lowly. He comes to us and he lifts us up because our mourning and sadness uniquely qualifies us for the true blessing that he gives. It uniquely prepares us to receive the comfort of Jesus, who's the only true comfort in this world. If you're weak, if you feel your sin is too strong to fight, God promises to give strength and righteousness. We see this in verse three. He says, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planning of the Lord for the display of his splendor. This is the promise of enduring strength and righteousness in the lives of God's people. And it's again another contrast to what we saw all the way back in chapter one of Isaiah, which when describing the people in their sin, he describes them as oaks but not strong and tall oaks of righteousness, but weak and withering and fading oaks with no water that are only gonna be burned up, only drying out and withering up. He says uh, to those who are ru feel ruined and devastated, in verse four, he's talking of course about the city of Jerusalem not individuals specifically, but the idea is the same because that was the communal aspect of God's people. And what God promises here is that nothing is too devastated or ruined for God to rebuild it. And that rebuilding may not always come fully in this life, but it will come, and so we don't lose heart. And this is a contrast to what's previously set, been said about Babylon, that the city that that Babylon is the city of pride, the city of opposition to God. 
And it talks about how that city, that city that lives in opposition to God, back in chapter 13, Isaiah says, it will never be rebuilt, no matter how great the rebuilding efforts are and how much energy is expended towards it, it will not be rebuilt, no matter how great the effort is. But for God's city, for those whose lives belong to him and bow before him, no matter how great the desolation is, no matter how great the ruins, how, how long the, the ruins lie there, he promises it will be rebuilt. It will be restored. It will be renewed. He goes on to say, if you're filled with shame and disgrace in verse seven, shame and disgrace can result from the things we've done. Shame and disgrace can result from the things that have been done to us. And when we feel that shame and disgrace, we will often fear that the exposing of that will only result in more shame and disgrace being heaped upon us, but not when we come to God with it. Because God says to those that he will lift you up in dignity and honor and he will clothe his children in splendor. He gives to those who were shamed in verse seven, he gives them the place of honor in the family. He mentions the double portion which is a reference to what the oldest child would get in their share of the family inheritance due to occupying that space of, that place of special honor and privilege. And he's saying, that's what you have in Jesus. No matter how much shame and disgrace you might have felt, when you come to Jesus, he gives you that place of privilege and honor. And he ends verse seven with the assurance that everlasting joy will be yours. Life often robs us and leaves us longing, but that's not our eternal end. That's not our true identity. Our eternal end will reflect our true identity. And considering all these radical changes of what we are in ourselves and what God's grace brings into that, it's fitting, it's appropriate then that we get a new name, because that new identity is represented by this new name that God gives to his people. And I want to reread some of what was already read in chapter 62, verses one through five. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Zion's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You'll be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or your name or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah. Hephzibah, if you look in your uh, margin footnote there, it means my delight is in her. And your land will be called Beulah, Beulah means married. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. The name God gives to those who once had the name deserted 
and desolate. How about this for a name? Holy people, redeemed of the Lord, sought after, married, no longer deserted, my delight is in her. It's a pretty good name. These are all relational ideas. And some of them carry with them the connotation of not just any relationship, but of marriage. One of the most uh, special and personal and intimate of all human relationships. And this imagery of marriage is one we've seen before in Isaiah. And I think when we've seen it previously, I might have mentioned that it's, it's, uh, it, it alludes to, it's reminiscent of the prophet uh, Hosea, who that prophet marries Gomer, who becomes his wife, and Gomer, that Gomer is a female name, <laughs> um, Gomer, who becomes an adulteress, and her sin leads her uh, to despair. She gives herself over to adultery, and it leads her to despair. She ends up being sold as a slave, but guess who comes to buy her? Hosea. Hosea comes, her former husband, and redeems her. He pays that slave price not to bring her back as his slave, but to make her his wife again. To reestablish the relationship of love and faithfulness that had been lost because of sin. And this is an allegory of God's love for his people. That's what our identity is. We belong to God. He loves us. We are his And he clothes us in honor and dignity as his children. He makes us, verse uh, 3 of chapter 62 says, He makes us to be a crown of splendor in his hand, a royal diadem crown in the hand of our God. Earlier in uh, Isaiah, in chapter 28, the people of Ephraim uh, were described to have a crown. But that crown... They put on their own heads because of their pride. And so that crown faded away. But this crown, God gives it. It's received in humility, and so it's unfading. Its glory doesn't fade away, but it shines with God's glory forever. And it's interesting that the crown isn't said to be put on our heads but that we are the crown and we're in God's hands. And the idea there is that we are God's priceless possession that he holds onto and he keeps in his grasp and he keeps in his sight, he keeps before him and holding us in his hand, he cares for us and protects us and won't let us go because of his love for us. He won't lose us. No matter what the circumstances of life might suggest, we can know that we're never forsaken by him. We're always held on to by him. The question that this confronts us with is which identity are we going to listen to and live out of? We're always going to live out of an identity. Which one are we going to listen to and live out of? Which one are we going to let define who we are and how we view ourselves and what we believe God, how we believe God views us. Which one are we gonna listen to? The false identity of condemnation that we mutter to ourselves when we're beating ourselves down or loathing over our sin or failure? 
or the false identity of worthlessness that maybe uh, our enemies speak against us in order to grind us down or the false identity of performance that the world speaks to us that we're only worthy when we live up to its standards or live by its empty values or the true eternal and unfading identity that the God of the universe gives us when he adopts us as his children. You see, the identity that God gives us is the only thing that matters. No one can take that away from us. No one can change that. No one can even chip away at it because that's the one that is real because God says that's our true identity. Which identity are we gonna listen to and which identity are we gonna live by? Because we tend to live up or down to our name. When we think our name is desolate or forsaken by faith, we know that our name is found. When we think our name is deserted by faith, we know that our name is delight. And um, I think that a passage like this, to some degree, is meant to be more imagined and absorbed than it is meant to be analyzed. And I want us to think about this, that God is our Father, and he gives us a name. Not just any name, but the most precious and beautiful and dignifying and honoring of names. Maybe just for a minute, imagine God your Father on the day of your new birth in Christ. When you come into his family, he receives you in his arms, he smiles, maybe he sheds a tear, and he says, this isn't hard. I've got the perfect name, object of my delight. Nothing should create in us more delight in God than when he calls us by our name, which reminds us of his delight in us. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to have faith. Increase our faith, strengthen our faith to believe what's sometimes hard to believe, that you love us that you delight in us, that you are our good and perfect heavenly father, that we are your children. Help us to live out of that and help us to find uh, confidence in it as we face the difficulties and trials of life. Help us to find comfort in it as we face the sadnesses and despairs of life. Help us to find satisfaction in it as we sometimes in life are left empty. Help us to find eternal joy in it. All these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.